0: Hold on to your butt.
1: Welcome to episode 36 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host Mary, and I am joined by the guy who will say on a Sunday morning around 10:30, "I am definitely not drinking today," but later polish off three beers. And the most Ooh. awesome Civil War nerd I know, Darren. Oh, wow! Okay. Well, you re-
0: <laughs> you're, you're rebounded with that intro. That's where you were going with that one? I resemble I resemble that comment. I anyway, told so- I,
1: Hey, hey! I've done the same thing, right? Like, how many times have I woke up on a Sunday and been like, oh, "I'm not going to drink today." <laughs> Noon, crack a beer.
0: That ah, was a nice day. What can you do? It was. Well, that. when was one a is nice friends day. with you, one does that. That's I'm blaming a long, long line of people. Trust me, long line of people. <laughs> Anyways, how are you? How's everything going? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. It's doing good. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. It's Tuesday. <laughs> it better um, not be Wednesday.
1: We uh, we Wednesday. would be late for our lecture that we're supposed to be well, on tomorrow true, night. It's true.
0: <laughs> It's a beautiful day here in uh, Cape Cod, USA. Life is good. Life is good. So we had a good live last weekend. Again, we say this we all did. the time, but they, they are. They're good. We are pushing our roundtable off to next week because that's yep. your point. We are doing a lecture with the great Lisa Samia tomorrow night mm-hmm. as we record this. And she's doing another one of her lectures. And so we're looking forward to that. We will get back to our roundtable again next week after we do yet another live this weekend.
1: Yeah. So if you haven't attended one of our roundtables before, they're a lot of fun. It's basically like just having... A Civil War nerd discussion in a bar. So we just kind of talk about whatever comes up. So if you never attended before, uh, just drop us an email, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com. And speaking of bars, that leads into what are we drinking tonight,
0: Leeks? Ooh, good discussion. Good discussion. By the way, you're a nerd. I'm cool. But that's okay. We'll leave that there. Fucker. I know I'm not. I'm all right, I'm not okay. Fucker. I'm drinking from Treehouse Moment of Clarity which is a fantastic chocolate maple stout, which sounds as good as it is. Mm. And we are talking about the capture of Jefferson Davis tonight. Therefore, I am drinking out of my The North Undefeated Civil War Champions coffee mug because it's a celebration mood if you support the Union, and that's what we're doing. So what about you?
1: Yes, I am drinking Doc Perdue's Boxing Bruin which has nothing yes, nothing to do with tonight's episode. And we did not plan that Darren was going to be wearing a Bruins hat and I was going to pick a beer that was called Boxing Bruin. And I'm drinking it out of my... And just because I have nothing to do with Jefferson Davis and a mug or I don't have the cool mug collection that Darren apparently has, I've chosen my Sherman Staff mug because O.O. Howard's on it. And no, that is not the O.O. reference I was telling you about before.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) William T. Sherman, your second favorite general, but yes. that's okay. As we alluded to earlier, Mary, we are going to be talking about the very end of the Civil War here. We're going to be talking about the capture of Jefferson Finus Davis, mm-hmm. who you may have heard was the president of the Confederacy for four years. He was. And he was, as everything fell apart at the very end, he went on a little run. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how he got caught. We're going to talk about the final step. So, what happened to old Jefferson Davis at the end? And I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a fun overall discussion.
1: I think it will too. But first we have to go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis is born June 3rd, 1808 in Kentucky. And he's born around a hundred miles from where Abraham Lincoln will be born in the year 1809 davis is the son of samuel and jane cook davis his father was a veteran of the um can't have been a veteran of the why do i have revolutionary war written down it can't be
0: Uh, i'm pretty sure it was the um yeah oh no it must have been
1: no it would have been (laughs) revolutionary war i don't know
0: (laughs) someone's doing a research on this i know i did
1: i had it written down um anyway we'll just edit that one out he was Um, he was
0: he was a veteran of the galactic wars (laughs) jesus uh, those clone wars actually yeah I think a long ago time ago in a galaxy far yeah. far, far away far, far um, away
1: and jefferson finest davis will be their final son their 10th and final son and that's that's why he has the middle name of finest because that was it that's how they said told the world they were done having children after 10 was that's well, one going way to be of it's
0: a little, little verbal birth control right there yep he's named jefferson of course after thomas jefferson mm-hmm. who was the third President of the United States. Now, it's an interesting childhood for Jeff Davis. And so, youngest of 10 children, to your point, grew up in Wilkinson County, Mississippi. He studied at Wilkinson Academy. Now, you mentioned his father, Samuel, and he was really raised by his older brother, Joseph. Mm-hmm. He had a brother, Joe, who was 23 years older than him. He kind of acted as a surrogate father. Sam Davis ended up dying when Jeff was 16 in 1824, ironically, on July 4th, Mary,
1: 1824.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, he was kind of raised by Joseph, and Joseph is going to kind of stay with him for a lot of his younger days. Jefferson goes off to study at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, where he is going to be schoolmate of Albert Sidney Johnson, we've talked about in the past. Eventually, he's going to end up getting an appointment to West Point thanks to his brother Joseph, who's going to hook him up. He will join the class of 1828, where he will finish 23rd of 33, which is exactly Two thirds of the way down, and he's going to give himself in a little bit of trouble. He's going to be a little hellion at West Point, kind of like you know, the way you were at the old um, University of Toronto.
1: University of Toronto. Yeah. If I was a hellion at the University of Toronto, wow, wow that's uh, yeah. We don't need to talk about those wild days. No, I can only imagine. <laughs> oh,
0: imagine.
1: So he gets a little. He's going to
0: have some fun, like a lot of us did in school. Um, never me, of course. I was a saint. I was
1: no, a you were probably, right? yeah, I'm sure you were a fucking saint. I mean, might
0: have did a little double dribbling at the direct the wreck basketball court, but that was the extent of everything.
1: You I were probably just about as much of a saint as as I am, the head nun at the uh, nunnery in Dumbfuckistan.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was exactly <laughs> what it was. But Jeff Davis, you know, he he had some fun. He gets himself in a little bit of trouble in school. We had a little talk talking about this earlier with the infamous Eggnog Riot mm-hmm. on Christmas of 1826. Now, this is you know, just a regular drunken Christmas party. Some of his students decided to smuggle in a bunch of whiskey into the barracks at West Point. Ended up being a complete dumpster fire. 70 cadets end up getting in trouble, including Davis. About 20 get court-martialed, but not him. He somehow gets away with it, so he's going to want to survive the great Eggnog, R- Eggnog Riot. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> that
1: just sounds bad. That just just bad or, or, or as bad
0: as we called it at Boston College, Tuesdays, by the way, just to let you know how that works. That's out a Monday that at
1: school.
0: U of T. Oh, God. But so he does graduate, like we said before, 23 of 33. He is going to join the first U.S. regiment in 1829, where he is going to work under Zachary Taylor, mm-hmm. who is the same Zachary Taylor Mary, who is was going to be a president of the United States down the road. He will find himself participating in the Black hawk war in 1832 and it's all about the annunciation okay taylor zachary taylor has davis davis actually escorts the captured sock war chief black hawk himself to prison Mm -hmm. and actually ends up as his quasi bodyguard he's someone who's pretty thought of pretty highly by taylor that's going to change as time goes forward yeah because jefferson davis is going to meet his daughter Sarah Knoxie Taylor. And he's going to be smitten. It's, he's going to fall hard for her. So, Zach Taylor's daughter, Sarah Knox Taylor, Davis wants to marry her. Of course, Taylor, Zachary Taylor says, no, no Sirree Bob, because he doesn't want his daughter to live that army wife life, to be honest. he The yeah. frontier life, he doesn't want her to do that. So, Davis, to his credit, I guess, he says, well, okay, good point. I'm going to quit the army. I'll marry her. Taylor still says no friggin' way, but he does anyway. He's going to marry her against his father's wishes in June of 1835. Brother Joseph, his this older brother we mentioned before, he owns a big plantation near Vicksburg called Briarfield. Mm-hmm. You know, he's really fond of Jefferson Davis. So he wants Jefferson Davis and his young wife around him. So he allows them to use the plantation. He's going to keep ownership of it, but he's going to let them use the plantation. Three months after their marriage, they go on a little honeymoon. They get themselves sick.
1: You know, they catch malaria. In this-
0: they get malaria. Sarah is going to die in September 1835 after three months of marriage. It's pretty bad. Sarah, actually, it's a little trivia, she's the only person to be the daughter of a U.S. president and marry a, quotation figures American president. <laughs> so... There you go quotation but marks around the president yeah. so she's gonna die after three months and she, i think she's like age 21 she's, yeah, totally she's really very young.
1: very young um you know? and the malaria will actually affect davis for the rest of his life like he's actually quite a sickly person especially during his presidency and he he gets this thing which was it was commonly called neuralgia and it's basically just like areas where your body is in extreme pain and he would be like bedridden. he also had like problems with like almost like asthma as well, um, most likely as a result of just the aftereffects of malaria.
0: So like, like you, he had head pains on a Saturday morning yeah. when he woke up for the most part. Not drunk, but he, not
1: booze-induced.
0: Not not no. <laughs> but Davis is going to kind of go into a dark place after this. He's going to become basically a recluse for a couple of years. He's going to mm-hmm. spend a lot of time at, that, at Briarfield. He's going to really help develop that plantation. And here is, he's going to begin to accumulate slaves to work his land. Now, by 1860... Davis is going to own 113 slaves. He's going to have a huge population of slaves. He considers himself a kind slave owner. Now, this is where it's interesting with Jefferson Davis. He allows them to marry. He actually gives them time off for their honeymoons. He actually pays for their weddings and their parties. Don't make any mistake about it. His attitude towards slavery was brutal. He has quotes where he says, The Negro is inferior, fitted by Almighty God expressively for servitude. He says slavery is a divine blessing. He goes on and on and on. He literally thinks slavery is God's gift to the white man. Yeah. Literally.
1: And I think he lived in this kind of bubble at Briarfield where he thought, oh, if I'm treating them well, then then everybody else must be as well, and and all that. But obviously, that's not the case. And it's just it doesn't matter how he treats them; it's wrong. You know.
0: It's exactly. And so as you read these stories about how he does these things for these people, understand he's still a brutal with this yeah i think you're you're right though i think he sees the way he treats them as they're living some sort of good life and this is how they everyone must be living i think it does skew his mind which is strange because he lives in mississippi and he probably sees a lot of this stuff but yeah. that's what it, whatever the hell is but what we talked about the thoughts versus actions and what he thought was clearly different than what he acted, and vice mm-hmm. versa because yeah he, he was a bad dude with this stuff but he did take care of his own for whatever reason we jump ahead to 1844 he's going to meet another girl. Her name is Verena Banks Howell and she's 18 years old and she's a granddaughter of New Jersey Governor Richard Howell. Mm -hmm. They are going to get married soon after. This is February of 1845 and around this time I don't know if it's because of his background or because of the governor of New Jersey, he decides he's going to run for Congress. And he wins. He wins election as a U.S. representative in 1845. So he's starting to accumulate that military and political experience. Mexico he finds himself in the Mexican War in 1846 he raises a regiment called the mississippi rifles and was a colonel again awkward under zachary taylor so Ooh, sorry yeah he's probably blaming him for the death of his daughter should have brought the bug spray (laughs) 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 hashtag too soon must have must have been awkward under zachary taylor again but he but he certainly did but you know what though at this point he's got a Taylor has a lot of respect for him at this point. For whatever reason, he participated in the Battle of Monterey, the Battle of Buena Vista, where he gets shot in the heel. Mm-hmm. But he earns that respect of Taylor. And he has Taylor has that quote. He says, you know what? My daughter was a better judge of men than I was. Which from Zachary Taylor, who if you've seen his yeah. pictures, didn't look like a happy guy to me. No. But he certainly felt happy at that moment. He, was, he, he felt that Jefferson Davis was somebody he could look up to. After Mexico, he gets appointed senator of the state of Mississippi by Governor Albert Brown. Mm-hmm. Now he's appointed, he's not elected. It's a vacant position. So he he just gets appointed in. And he's going to be elected or put in place as a Democrat. He ends up on the Committee of Military Affairs. Later he'll be Secretary of War under Franklin Pierce in 1853. And it's around this time he develops a really strong hatred of Winfield Scott. He yeah. just doesn't like them. They just, they just don't get along. Ironically, if you see the statue on top of the Capitol, the Freedom Statue, yep. you know who signed, you know who approved that was Jefferson Davis, yep. which yeah. is always kind of funny. But yeah.
1: another interesting you know, thing about him, too, to mention, when he became a senator, before that he had been offered a promotion to being Brigadier General, and he turned it down, which I found interesting he, too. He doesn't,
0: you know, eighteen fifty eight, as he he does return back to that Senate. Now this is that eighteen fifties time where if you were paying attention, Mary, to our episode of secession recently, which you probably weren't, but if you were, Fucker. you would notice that there was that tension that was brewing in the north in the Mm -hmm. 1850s and the south there was there was all that stuff we talked about right so davis isn't returns to the senate right in the middle of it now it's ironic somehow he gets himself a cold and almost loses his eyesight because of a cold i don't know how the hell whatever but he does ends up spending a month in a darkened room for his eye but later that year july 4th 1858 he finds himself in the God's greatest city in the world, Boston, probably for a Red Sox game on July fourth, and gave an anti-secession speech urging the union to stay together. This is Jefferson this is Jefferson Davis in Boston doing an anti-secession wow. speech. How backwards is that whole thing, right? And he says, I should no longer be wanted to see a Southern man address a Democratic audience in a city like Boston. So it's exactly bizarre world, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. It really was. But he does. January 9th of 1861, Mississippi is going to secede from the Union. And Davis does leave the Senate at this point. Yeah. And he becomes a major general of the Army of Mississippi. He calls that day the saddest day of his life. I mean, a lot of stuff happened after that, but that was the saddest day of his. Yeah. Thing. Okay. Forget the wife thing. The whole. <laughs> I know. Conspiracy. I was just going to say. That what the about
1: the wife thing? Like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. I don't, well, I'm at this point, so, you know. The Confederacy needed a president, and they consider Robert Toombs. as we talked about. Davis is going to be selected. Six of the seven seceded states at that point will basically appoint him. And he's elected to a six-year term later. He's going to take the inauguration, and Alexander Stevens, a fun lover, is going to be the vice president of that state. So as he takes over the Confederacy, what he has in his resume is he's got West Point. He's got military experience he's got political experience and he clearly thinks he has the answers to every test oh, you're going to give him.
1: He he does, you know, when you, when you're comparing him to Abraham Lincoln like you're you're looking at the experience that Davis has, you know, I mean, yeah, Lincoln fought in the Black Hawk War as well, I know enunciate. Um, but it's not you know, he doesn't have the West Point experience that Jeff Davis has. So you, you looking, you're looking at them and you're thinking like, well, it seems like Davis would have more experience and maybe he would be able to could make things harder for Lincoln. But no, as we know that, that that's not the case because Davis starts off his presidency very popular at first because, as you said, Darren, because of this military experience, he had his political experience and he is dedicated to the cause of upholding slavery, which of course... If that's what you're fighting for, you better be able, you know, dedicate it to upholding that cause. Well, he um, does. He
0: did a quote. He said, he, in his quote, he said, slavery is a cornerstone of our Confederacy. Yeah, that was him who said that. That was, you know. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Davis, though, is he had that I'm the smartest kid in the class thing going for him. Because what yeah. he would do, I don't know if it was by design or just ignorance. He found a habit of hiring either his friends or family or anybody incompetent around him, whether it be Leonidas Polk we talked about. His nephew Joseph Davis, we saw fight at Gettysburg, who yep. complete mess. Yep. Later, as that goes on, he's loved in the Confederacy, but he's hated by the Rebel military because he's not going to hire a general in chief of the army until uh, until January of eighteen sixty five, when he puts Robert E. Lee when the whole the, the horse is out of the barn. He considers himself the man in charge throughout the entire thing. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about Lincoln, his meddling here and there. And, yeah. But he doesn't hold a candle to this guy with a meddling. No, he does. Davis you know, is like
1: a – he's a prime micromanager. And as you said, like he's appointing his friends and then people who aren't very good. I think the exception to this, though, would be Albert Sidney Johnston. They are friends. Hmm. They had known each other, I think, since their days at Transylvania University he and I mean, Davis clearly respected him from that quote that we had in our episode about Shiloh, where without Johnston, we don't have anything. But it seems like after Johnston, it's like you have like John Bell Hood. Well, um, oh, think, think about what he did. Polk, you know, brag.
0: He, he he let shit fester among his generals. Yeah, we talk about Bragg, Chickamauga and Joseph Johnson. He does that whole fiasco. And maybe it wasn't him personally, but it had to have been when Patrick Claiborne writes that letter with the slaves. Yeah, and
1: Davis hides, okay. the, hides the stuff in the back of his filing cabinet, he basically. Hides he hides,
0: he pulls it out towards the very end when it's too late. But yep. 1865, it was order number 14, where he basically does not list the slaves at the end, and no one signs up, or very few do. Yep. But that was a case where by the end of March of 1865, the, sh- the hunt was over, and anyway, yep. it was a complete mess. But as you look back on Jefferson Davis's career in the Confederacy, okay, you know, he had some success in Mexico when we talked about that. But everything he did in those four years of the Confederacy for the most part, he did was wrong, whether it be ego or incompetency, but it does finally burn in the end. So let's fast forward to April 2nd, 1865. Yeah. Okay. He's sitting in a church, in a pew at St. Paul's Church in Richmond.
1: And the Geico and lizard shows up to tell him that the Geico his lizard, country has his expired.
0: <laughs> his country's warranty is now has now has expired. So he gets that message <laughs> from Robert E. Lee saying that basically he's pulling, he's getting out of. Petersburg, the whole thing's falling apart. Yep. You should evacuate Richmond because that this so is the last speed bump. We're done. We're exactly. Fucked. Exactly. That's exactly where he was. It was the last bump in the road for Grant to Richmond, okay? So Davis, you don't have to tell him twice. He's going to jump in his Honda CRV. He's going to leave Richmond with his cabinet, 3,000 men, and the Confederate treasury, which we'll talk about here in a little while. So after a nine-month siege and after a long time with, say, McClellan on the peninsula trying to get Richmond, Richmond's finally going to fall. Yeah, It's finally going to fall. So Davis... And this is where, again, whether it's grandiose or whatever, he's still under this false illusion that the Confederacy can still win this, right? Yeah. He's going to move the government. He wants to go to that Trans-Mississippi area because for some inexplicable reason, he thinks there's a whole factory of soldiers ready to meet him to take over.
1: Yep. He thinks he's going to be able to keep shit together and everything else,
0: you know? Well, I mean, I don't think he he doesn't realize that that all they have there is older men young boys, everybody who's still able to fight has already fought and they're they're, they're done, right? So he's still hoping the Confederacy is still alive even when he's kind of on the run. He's optimistic, but he's not realistic is what it comes down to. He
1: gives speeches as he's on the run that are basically saying are we are still going to uphold this cause you know he i think he gives one when well he's the in all, the carolinas. Not, all not law speech yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. like he gives a, one of those speeches when he's in the carolinas and mm-hmm. it's like literally everything is burning around him and he's there saying nope we've got this we're fine really really we are fine yeah. and they go to Dan- he goes to danville first and the reason for that is because at least he's still in virginia so he hasn't left the state completely and he thought that would be good morally Well, it's
0: also the last stop of the train line.
1: Yeah, exactly. Their trains were so shitty. Do you know how long it took them to get to Danville? Like it takes 18 hours or some shit like that because they can only go I was,
0: like. I was going to say about a million. Yeah,
1: about a million yeah. hours because they can only go about yeah. 10 miles an hour. And sometimes when they start going up hills, the train will actually come to a stop.
0: But it's it's such a miracle he gets out. He takes the one, you know, the old last train to Clarksville, as yeah. they say. He, he gets to Danville, which is his first stop on his magical mystery tour he's going to be going on. He's in Danville. And this is April 5th, a couple of days later. And he issues a defiantly delusional proclamation to the Confederacy, where he's going to yep. say, I'm going to read now, so get ready. We have now entered into a new phase of the struggle. I announce to you, fellow countrymen, that it is my purpose to maintain your cause, which I hold with my whole heart and soul. And I will never consent to abandon the enemy, one foot of the soil of any state of this Confederacy. Now, he's saying that, and you could almost hear a laugh track in the background. Oh, yeah. Right. For one, the, the Union is in just about every foot of, in the state of the Confederacy at that point. But he's still defiant. He still thinks he can do mm-hmm. it. So a couple of days later, up at Appomattox on April 9th, Robert E. Lee, nope. Yep. The he, opposite he, to
1: what Davis is saying is happening. And that's just where there's this huge disconnect between what the politicians are saying and what the soldiers are saying. And that's something very similar that you see at the beginning of the Civil War with how a few of these army guys felt about secession. You know, like you look at Sherman and Jackson and they're saying... This is going to be a long, drawn out affair. And meanwhile, you know, you have ones like Abraham Lincoln that, like, ah, now nah, we got this. You know, so there's this disconnect that is still it's still happening at the end of the war, and it's happening with the Confederacy this time.
0: It just goes to show how he is. So, you know, April 10th, the day after Lee surrenders at Appomattox, Davis is going to leave Danville, and he's going to end up going for Greensboro, North Carolina, and he's going to get to Charlotte eventually. But he's planning to continue to move further south over the next few weeks. During this time, half of his cabinet's quitting. So literally, picture of a, a wagon with wheels falling off yeah. as it's rolling. That that's Confederacy. The cabinet almost one by one is saying the hell with this. Four days later, April 14th, 1865. Abraham Lincoln's gonna be shot. Abraham Lincoln mayor was a president of the United States this time, in case you thank, didn't know, thank you. So fucker. he's gonna be shot. Okay. But many in the the North are gonna blame him and his cabinet mm-hmm. for the assassination. We talked a lot about that when we did the booth thing a few yep. weeks ago. And
1: Davis does express regret at his death years later davis said he would have been much less harsh on the south than what had happened And I think he said it was one of the worst things to happen to the Confederacy was was. was his death. And then so what happens after this is all of a sudden reward for Davis's capture. And then all of a sudden the search for him, everybody's like, "Yup, let's get the bastard.
0: Well, like he doesn't have as much problems in his damn life. Now he's got a bounty for killing the president. Talk about a bad freaking horoscope, right? He's like, well, okay, so he's going to get you to go. Breena and the family are with them, but they're a little bit ahead. They're waiting in a place called Abbeville, South Carolina. Verena and the, the family left earlier to try to get ahead. But they're sitting there in Abbeville. And you know what? She gets sick of waiting. She's like, you know what? The hell with this. Let, let's just keep going. We'll catch up with him later on. OK, so he's going to basically go or she's going to go. Is this
1: kind of like May when S- someone says they're
0: going to be 15 minutes? and Yeah. Or just doesn't call at all. And they're like either one. OK, so May, <laughs> May 2nd in Abbeville, he does finally get there. To Abbeville, and he's going to meet the remainder of his cabinet for his final council of war. He stays at a place called the Burt Stark Mansion, which I for years thought was the Bart Starr Mansion. Admittedly, I did. The okay. Bart Star Mansion. I, ju- I just did. <laughs> That's got to be Bert a meme. Burt Stark. It's got to be a I'm like, like, wow, the Bart Starr, Mint? wow. But it's a Burt Stark commit. I just did, okay, whatever. But it was also known as the Armistead Burt House. Now, Armistead Burke was a friend of Verena from the 1840s. They knew each other so that you can tell why they would end up trying to meet up there. Every advisor is sitting with him, is telling Davis... This shit is over. Yeah, we're done. With right? We're talking John Breckenridge. We're talking Braxton Bragg was there, Mary. Basil Duke, who was a brother-in-law of the great John Hunt Morgan, another guy who spent the night in Ohio jail, and who was also the second in command of Morgan's Raiders. So they're all telling him, it's over. It's like the end of Ferris Bueller. It's over. Go home. And he's pissed. He's like, you know, he's aggravated. But you know what, though? All these people who are telling him this are like, dude, we're worried about your safety now. You've got a bounty on your head everyone's looking for you just turn yourself in because you're not where the hell are you going to go but he's still thinking that he can make it west of the mississippi and his troops there and this is holding is going to continue but you know what eventually the antifreeze buzz wears off on old jeff davis and he finally realizes all right you know what fine so he agrees to quit in essence quit ending the confederate government right there in abbeville south carolina so after the meeting davis the treasury and the cabinet are all going to disperse. Davis is going to have like a 3,000-man 3, 3, protective force. Now, here's what's cool about this story, Mary, that um, we were going to talk about, was this rebel treasury that vanished, right? Yeah. Basically, most of it was hard currency. It was gold. So it was half a million bucks in coins, 600 million in Confederate paper, 18,000 pounds of British pound sterling, and a chest of silver, my favorite, donated by the Confederate women, and then some documents of six Richmond banks showing where all the Confederate money is, okay? It's going to be guarded by a guy named Captain William Parker. They're going to put it on a train. They're going to head to Washington, Georgia, because they want to get it to Macon. But they find out the Macon is occupied. They can't take it to Macon. They go back to Abbeville. They put the treasure in a warehouse. And Parker is going to transfer control of that treasure to a guy named Captain Masaika Clark, who's going to get it back to that Basil Duke guy, the John Morgan guy. The money's disappearing as it's going, as you can imagine. A little yeah. bit here, a little bit there. They hit the Dunkin' Donuts. OK, I get this one. It's slowly disappearing. So a lot of the money is it just gets spent, right? A lot of it gets war reparation stuff. They pay some old debts. There is about sixteen million bucks in today's currency that is literally unaccounted for to this day. They have no idea where it went. It creates a really cool mystery. And there's been a whole bunch of TV shows. that National uh, Treasure just,
1: Three should be about that. Well,
0: right, <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> there's that. What well, oh, that was that? The missing Confederate gold one. But oh, that's Oak true. Island, Oak Island, or something. Is that? Oh, am I getting what that right? Are, I think it is. But whatever it is, the $16 million worth in today's currency of Confederate money that literally to this day is unaccounted for, that they don't know where it is. So it's out there somewhere. So who knows? But maybe you'll find it. You know, strike it rich. Davis, he, what he wants to do is he wants to get to Texas. He wants to get to Texas, meet up with his family, but he needs to get through federally controlled Georgia to do it. And he doesn't know how the hell he's going to do it. So May 3rd, he's sitting in a place called Petersburg, Georgia which no longer exists, Mary. I'll tell you about that. He stops there. It's this place where he's going to cross over the Savannah River. Now, this is the town where he's going to take the rumors anyway. He's going to take that big golden Confederate seal. He's going to throw it down a well so his country can be free, right? As Borat once said. He's going to throw this thing down this well. But you know what happens to that town? The Clark Hill Lake expands, floods the town. To this day, it's underwater. Wow. So that well, wherever it is, is somewhere underwater, and the town no longer exists because it's a lake now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. So if you want to find the Confederates' golden seal, good luck to you because it's somewhere in a learn well how to inside scuba of dive. A lake. Definitely, you know he's going to head to Washington, Georgia, which ironically is the home of Robert Toombs. He's going to he's going to head down there where he's going to sign those last official documents of the Confederacy. He's a, he's going to sign those in a local bank. This is where he's also going to learn. Earlier, we mentioned the Treasury that Macon is controlled by the Feds that all the roads in and out are occupied, that he can't make it, that he can't. And so he decides he's going to, like most old people, he's going to jump on a train and go to Florida. And he wants to get a boat. He wants to sail over to Texas. That's what he's going to, that's his grand plan. He's going to, he's going to get to Florida. He's going to jump on a boat. While he's sitting in Dublin, Georgia, he keeps moving along. He is going to catch up with Verena and his, his family. Yeah. He's going to bump into them. He's going, hey, there they are. Verena tells him, look, we're camped. Just keep going. Just stay ahead of us. Don't We're going to slow you down. Just go. He's, a, you know, he's like, oh, I don't want to, but I will. So he, he ends up saying no at first, but he finally does go. But as he goes, the weather gets really shitty and all the rivers get flooded And so he has to slow down. He has to stop. Eventually, Verena's party is going to catch up with him, and they're all going to be together. So they're going to set up camp in a little town called Irwinville, Georgia. What he doesn't know is, while this is all going on, that there are two federal regiments and units who are following him, and they're right nearby. He doesn't know it. This is the 4th Michigan Cavalry and the 1st Wisconsin, and they're right on his tail, and he doesn't know it.
1: Yeah, and they are going to eventually find him on May 10th, 1865. But there's a bit of a funny story behind this. Well, I shouldn't say it's funny, but um, I believe the two sides, they don't realize when they find him, it, it's dark and they end up firing at each other, don't they?
0: Well, they do. But before yeah. that, though, if I'm going to tell one quick little yep. intrigue. The day before, May 9th, though, May 9th, Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Pritchard from the 4th Michigan Cavalry. An Ohio guy who studied at Hiram College, ironically, under James Garfield, Mary, at Hiram College. Eventually, he's going to graduate from the University of Michigan. Like most good Ohio people, they go to Michigan for education. But what's funny about it is, you go back to the whole gold thing, right? Some people think that Pritchard is the one who found that rebel gold and snuck it back to Michigan. There's that whole curse of Civil War gold TV show about Pritchard. This is what it was. They said he found the gold at this point. And that went back, but I digress. Pritchard's going to send one of his troopers into Irwinville, dressed as a southern civilian, because they think he's in the town somewhere, and they just want to find out where the hell he is. Davis had been in the town earlier in that day, and of course, someone rats him out. Says, yeah, he's staying at this this camp around the corner. Don't tell me. I didn't tell you, but that's where he is. To your point, that next morning on the 10th, about 2 a.m., they're going to find him.
1: Yeah, and when they do, this is where one of the and it turns out it is a myth about Jeff Davis's capture happens, but bef- well, it's but before that, well, there's the squirmishing between these two, the two cavalry. Yeah, it's
0: it's like they both the first Wisconsin and the fourth Michigan cavalry both somehow find the camp. Whether their route must be around the same time, it's almost like a who broke first the 11th situation. Like they were real close, yeah. they found it. Both thinks the other is a rebel cavalry. And They start firing each other back and forth, back and forth. Two end up getting killed, right? Yeah, friendly fire. They get killed. Davis and Verena wake up in the middle of the night and they hear the gunfire. But they don't think much of it. They think it's like robbers and marauders and yeah. and they don't think too much about it. Davis is like, well, they're probably Southerners. I'm just going to show who I am and they'll say, oh, it's Jefferson Davis. Let's all stop. So he kind of does his little thing. He quickly learns their federal troops.
1: Yeah, and he realizes else. he's like,
0: shit. And like he and Verena are like, oh my God, what do we do? So she's like, you get the hell out of here. Let's yeah. escape, right? So they just said, you know how like when you're, you're in the last thing you want to do is you want to run. You want to make it look like you're supposed to be there. So she's going to throw a shawl on him and they're going to grab a bucket and they're going to slowly start to walk out to the well like they're going to get water. Yeah. Like, And so they're going to get spotted by a guy named George Munger, okay, of the 4th Michigan. And they're like, "Um, where the hell are you guys going? Now Davis is funny. He gets caught. Davis claims that if Verena wasn't there, he was going to seize Munger, steal his horse, and ride away. Yeah, bullshit. But, so, but he so he throws Verena out of the bus. He's trying to save his ass. Oh my god! I Meanwhile,
1: well, she's helped him out because she like gave him this large waterproof jacket to put on as well, mm-hmm. and then her shawl and all that, you know.
0: Um, but he, he he gets arrested. The, ironically, that that shawl, that cloak, whatever you want to call it, still at the National Archives in Washington. Yeah. It still exists. And what
1: Davis said about it, he was like, my wife thoughtfully threw over my head and shoulders a shawl. I had gone perhaps between 15 and 20 yards when a trooper galloped up and ordered me to halt and surrender to which I gave a defiant answer and dropping the shawl and raglan from my shoulders advanced towards him.
0: (laughs) And so he's going to get caught and they're going to finally bag him. And this is going to begin one of those really funny marketing propaganda deals that to this day still persists. Harper's Weekly is going to post in their June 17th edition that there was no doubt that Jefferson Davis was disguised in women's clothes at the time of his capture. And the North is like, holy shit. This is the best thing in the world. Because obviously we'll talk more about this whole thing, but they're gonna basically all these cartoons are gonna come out yeah. that appeared every newspaper. He was dressed as a woman being captured, claimed that he was wearing a full dress, he had a bonnet on, probably some Cleveland Indians <laughs> crap to make the whole thing <laughs> even worse. He said, Verena begged the troop. This is the newspaper now. This is this is yeah. she says, Verena said, Please let my poor old mother out of the way of the firing. She is so frightened and fears she will be killed. Now, Okay. And then it says one of the troopers upon hearing this noticed the woman was wearing men's boots. Yeah. Told him to remove the dress. You won't fool us. Come on, old fella. <laughs> I mean, this is just the shit. It's a but you know what though? This stuff is a place though. So yeah. you want to embarrass your enemy at this point. Say you're trying to escape dress as a woman, right? And to this day, to this day, there are people who think that's still a true story. Yeah, and,
1: But what actually happened is that what he had on was a large waterproof, which was very not like it was just like a big kind of like a poncho, I guess you could say. And then, yes, Verena shawl. But this waterproof was something that just he had worn. He had it when he lived in Richmond, I think. But what happened is so P.T. Barnum, obviously reading the newspapers, gets wind of this dress story. And he writes Edwin Stanton, who is still Secretary of War this time. And he asked Stanton for the hoop skirt and said he will donate $500 to either the Sanitary Commission or the Freedmen's Bureau. Which, guess who's running the Freedmen's Bureau? Zachary Taylor. (laughs) Oh, oh, Howard. There's my OO reference. So, but when the items arrive in D.C., they're brought to D.C. as evidence and all this other stuff. Stanton discovered that it's just a jacket and shawl. It's not a hoop skirt. And he's really, really disappointed in this. Now he wasn't planned and he was certainly not going to give those to Barnum to display because that's going to mean that Jeff Davis was actually not in a hoop skirt and dressed as a woman. So Stanton does not allow these items to be displayed. And it's because he wants to keep perpetuating this myth that Davis had dressed as a woman,
0: and what's funny is even members of the Fourth Michigan refuted this story mm-hmm. later. Right, yeah, a guy named Captain James Parker, who wrote in a letter that was written in a, in a Portland, Maine paper. So another solid New Englander guy here. Okay, he wrote in this editorial to the newspaper. He wrote, "I was with the party that captured Jeff Davis. I can say Davis did not have at any time of his capture any garment." That was worn by women. In the foolish stories that were in the newspapers, were all false. That story was completely fabricated. Now, this is a guy who's was one of the guys who caught him. Mm-hmm. So obviously, people, you know, it was it was done to embarrass him. No one's gonna no one's gonna yeah. defend Jeff Davis for it, anything. Exactly. But like I, I mean, it's one I of think, those stories. It's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty obvious. That, that this is a story done to embarrass him, that we talk, we've talked a lot in this podcast about this historical memory and this urban myth thing. Yep. This is a classic case of this. Yep,
1: it's a clear urban myth that has been perpetuated
0: by Stanton. All of them. Helped perpetuate I mean, it. it the newspaper ran with it, which they tend to do. It makes you wonder why old Uncle Blingy Sherman didn't like the newspapers, Mary. Well, it makes yeah. you wonder, wonder a little bit, you know. They ran with it. It's designed obviously to embarrass the Davis, the South, the whole deal. And you you you'll still see you on the history channel when old yep. Chumley and uh, you know, those guys aren't on pawn stars yep. and it's actually a history show on and they show anything with Davis, they always show him being arrested with women's clothes on because yep. of the story. Every time. Every time.
1: Yep. No. And I mean it's it's a funny story. It's hilarious, but it's one of these things where if you dig a little bit further, you know, you realize it's a myth. And I mean, you get why, like, if you look at the, like, yes, he had the shawl on and and the waterproof jacket is like, you know, it's, it, it's a big jacket, like it doesn't, but it's meant for a man or like, you know, man or a woman, I guess, could, could wear it or whatever, but it's not a hoop skirt. And just what I found so interesting about it was just that Stanton is one of the ones behind this perpetuating this myth.
0: Well, of course he is. Yeah. Of course he is. Davis and the family do get bagged. They yeah. do get arrested and taken to Fort Monroe in Virginia. They're going to be charged with treason. They're going to be charged with killing Union soldiers via starvation, like my relative, by the way, yeah. not for nothing. And they're also he's also going to be accused of helping to set up that Lincoln assassination. Now, he's never going to be indicted. And he's not going to be tried, right? But like you mentioned earlier, he does end up in Savannah for a little bit of time. He
1: does. That's where he starts. He ends up in Savannah. He's taken there on May 16th. And from there, he goes to Fortress Monroe, where he's going to be imprisoned for two years. And at first, the conditions he's kept in are pretty harsh. Like they keep his leg shackled. And obviously, like they never referred, he, he thought it was pretty insulting. They didn't refer to him as president. They just referred to him as, I think, one of the names they call him, as, like Jeffy or something like that. Or how does it feel now, old Jeffy, to be in, <laughs> in prison or whatever? Eventually, he gets moved to some better conditions. And that's what tells him he could be here for a while. But he's there for just two years. And as she said, never tried for treason. And eventually he is, he, Eventually, he's it, released.
0: It's almost exactly two years. May 13th, 1867, yep. he gets released on a $100,000 bond. He gets a worse imprisonment after that. He gets sent to Canada. You yeah. Well, yep. he, he, tra- he travels to Canada you guys are going to spend some time in Montreal, right?
1: Yep. That's something that is talked about a lot in the history of Jeff Davis. He's only there for – he's not there for very long. And it actually recently came out back in the news here in Canada because there was a plaque – on um, a Hudson's Bay Company store that the spot of the store was the spot where Davis had once lived in this, this guy's apartment and the plaque was since removed because it was placed there by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So it's actually Verena and her mother who is referred to as Ma and their three children that start off in Montreal and then Davis comes to join him but they felt it was a safe haven there. Um, Quebec, especially during the Civil War. As we know, the conspirators from the assassination spent time here, including John Wilkes Booth. Davis actually had a bit of aspiring going on up here that was based out of Montreal, where he's going to live. He said that, When he leaves for Montreal, he he wrote to his brother and said, my trip was so devoid of incident, like the weary knife grinder, I have no tale to tell. So very quietly, he goes to Montreal. But when he gets there, he's actually quite popular. There was a bit of sympathy in my country for the South, unfortunately. And that's not because of the we wanted slavery. What we were afraid of, what some of us were afraid of up here, was that if the North won, we would be next. There was an idea that we could be annexed by you guys, which is why in July of 1867 we became a country. July the 1st was when we became a country.
0: if we did it, you could cross the border. Yeah, I so know. Who's, Fuck, la- who's laughing now? Oh, God. Who's
1: laughing <laughs> now? Right. America
0: wins all the time. Just um, saying.
1: But it's interesting. In July of 1867, Jeff Davis actually pays a visit to um, Toronto. And 7,000 people cheer him as he arrives at this, I think it's the Young Street Dock. And he also goes to a play that is for the Southern Relief Association, which is very similar to the Sanitary Commission. So there's my country raising money you know, for this thing called the Southern Relief Association. Dixie was played over and over at this play that he saw, apparently. One man remarked of him, though, that uh, Davis's hair and beard were fast turning white. His face was haggard and careworn, while his entire look and demeanor showed an old and broken down man. And it said during this time that Davis is very depressed, just over the whole, probably losing the war but the, thing well, but, yeah but the whole life thing yeah he, he's being encouraged by some to write down his experiences to write a memoir to write a history of the confederacy and he actually says to one person i am not ready emotionally to do that i just can't he's still very mm. like really fucking broken up about it and he said that um he made a speech in quebec one time and he said I thank you most kindly for this hearty British reception, which I take as a manifestation of your sympathy and goodwill for one in misfortune. Davis tells Canadian now can now Canadian citizens in July of 1867 that he hopes they would ever remain as free as a people as you are now. So he's probably a little bit, fuck these guys got to become their own country. You know,
0: (laughs) (laughs) here I am. Um,
1: So, um, but just interesting thing. And I wanted to read this fact for you because you'll find it interesting. He lives in a place called Mountain Street in Montreal in the home of a man named Reverend Henry w- Wilkes. Uh-huh. And I found that name really interesting. And that's where the Hudson's Bay Company building is now stands where this plaque had been. Um, he ends up returning to the South because of his health. But just the last part of this, Verena's mother is actually buried in Montreal. Oh, okay.
0: Yep. A lot so, of them did. So he does finally, he does return to the U.S. eventually in 1869, probably unclear probably by no coincidence Mm -hmm. that Andrew Johnson paroled them all in 18, just Christmas Day of 1868. So they were unconditionally and without reservation paroled. So he can return basically as a free guy, and he's going to end up being the head of an insurance company in Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> which has got to be weird. You know, you need your insurance for your hot tub and your your pool in the backyard. You walk in there, and there's old Jeff Davis <laughs> trying to screw you on a freaking life contract, you know, life insurance. So he ends up doing that for a while. Eventually, he's going to find his way back to Mississippi where he's going to write his memoirs, despite those soldiers song- singing for years that, that they want him to hang Jeff Davis from, from a sour apple tree, you yeah. know, all that stuff he's going to die basically peacefully in new orleans in 1889 so he's going to live a long life arena's gonna live a few years longer they're going to get buried in hollywood cemetery in richmond you know his legacy is going to be something but the thing about jefferson davis like you see a lot of these guys he still comes up all the time right yeah is recently as last month mary he was in the news he was if you remember this story yep. so if you remember somebody went to the selma cemetery old Live oak cemetery and stole a chair, a yep. $500,000 concrete chair that was a monument to Jefferson Davis, and they were going to threaten to turn it into a toilet, of all things. And it was held by some political group. They were only going to return it if the National Daughters of the Confederacy would hang a banner on its building on April 9th, the day of Lee's surrender. Or they were going to turn into a toilet. Oh, a But there was a, yeah. they, but, but it was, a it was a guy and a girl. They got themselves arrested. They finally they finally got popped. The chair got returned. I'm not sure if it's back in the cemetery or not, but it's weird. There's a, there's a chair in Selma, that, you know whatever. But but he's somebody who maintains his position in the national mainstream. Jefferson Davis, yeah. for whatever reason, he captures the imagination of the South. He's an eternal villain in the North because he was somebody who fought for the Union, went to West Point served the country in the military and in the in the country. He was a politician in the Senate and the House of Representatives, Secretary of War, right? Yep. He did all of these things, but yet he went and did everything possible to destroy that Constitution and the country. And so when he's going to be caught on the run, they're going to make sure they humiliate him any way they possibly can.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they do that with the, I mean, and the myth that the the dress story is fun. It's a fun part. Like, it's an interesting part of the story. And it's even more interesting when you look at what the what actually happened and why the myth was perpetuated you know, and who was behind the perpetuation of the myth. You know, the fact that P.T. Barnum is writing Stanton and being like, I want to put this shit in display. I want the hoops. Don't don't
0: forget, there were were, were people in the South who were trying to say that when Abraham Lincoln came into Washington, he was dressed up as Justin Bieber that day, (laughs) right? So it was the same thing. Exactly, yeah. The
1: same stuff is happening on both sides. (laughs)
0: Although although Lincoln was dressed as Justin Bieber, Mary. Don't you mean Shane
1: Bieber, the Indians pitcher, who is uh, doing quite well right now, which means we're going to fucking lose him because we won't be able to afford him?
0: anyway but but it's funny how the perception of these people where they want to try to demasculate yep. these guys in any way shape or form although lincoln was they did dress something they put like a they put like a they put a scottish cap on, on
1: him or something like that like <laughs> so just
0: they, they put a leather fonzie jacket on him, yeah
1: <laughs> about a million
0: <laughs> about a million but they um <laughs> But on dear butts, funny. it is pretty funny. But Jefferson Davis's story is an interesting one, though it really, really is. Because when he was when he was named president, he was told he was going to be elected president. He he just thought it was awful. He he, mm-hmm. he was he was reluctant. But once he took those reins, he embraced it, and he turned himself into a military chief, a political chief, and all the things they fought about. You know, about this is going to be about states' rats, right? Yep the first thing he does is sets up a strong confederate national government
1: exactly. right off the bat and, the, and complete, a year after you know, he becomes president he's the term is like he gets it renewed for a term of
0: 6 years yeah you know, he runs on a post because no one yeah. you know but what's funny what i always got to kick out of that stuff is is the whole states rights thing that was the whole, you know, oh, states rights. Yeah. You hear there's some time to time from some people, right? If that's the case, why did he set up a strong national government and didn't have a strong confederacy like he, like these people thought they were going to get? And that's always been the flaw in the whole lost cause argument yep. and, and a big part of it. And if you look at some of his quotes, like we said before, slavery is the cornerstone of our confederacy. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Slaves, they are, they are now happy and useful members of society. And when Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation, he said, all free Negroes, Within the Confederacy shall be placed back in the slave status in in the safe status in their issue in in that issue forever. So it was obviously a big deal. So when you hear the stories about how he was good to his slaves and the whole honeymoon thing. Yeah, it's speaking versus doing in this. He's someone who's got a, who's got a tough reputation and is well deserved. Oh, it,
1: it absolutely is. I mean, this is a guy that was fighting to like uphold slavery, and he owned people, and he thought like, well, if I'm nice to them, then everybody else must be too. Like, this is great, you know. Like, he deserves a reputation. Yes, that he, well, many he respects.
0: Does. He certainly does. But again, his legacy is going to continue, and he's going to be somebody who is going to be forever debated by anybody who studies a civil war because he's a huge part of it. He's up exactly. there with Robert E. Lee and Stonewall yeah. Jackson. He's somebody who, again, was a strong part of the government. He could have been president of the United States someday if everything yeah. didn't go the way it did. He could have been. He was someone who was highly thought of. But well, he was a highly the, um, respected
1: when he was secretary of war, even with the camel thing.
0: But you know what it was? It was that eggnog riot. That <laughs> everything Everything went bad after the eggnog, eggnog riot on Christmas of 1826. Everything went bad for him, so blame that. Blame that once again, eggnog gets them, it gets a guy. You
1: well, know, there was also the time that he was arrested for being in that one pub and being drunk, and he said he went in because it was raining, and they arrested Excuse him for being me. drunk.
0: Excuse it's like it, it was, that was
1: raining, one. so I came in here.
0: So it was it in Ohio? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I think that's a, we can drop off the, the conversation with old Jeff Davis there. I think yep. that's a good place to drop it off. What's next?
1: Next, we are back in. Actually, we're we're staying at the in the end of the Civil War. We're going to be on our third episode of the Carolinas, so we're wrapping up our threesome with that. So oh, we're going to be okay. talking Uncle Blingy. I'm sure Howard will make an appearance.
0: No, I don't say uh, Oliver Hogan? Yeah.
1: Grant and Lincoln will, too, because we're going to go up to City Point in that episode a little bit, we'll too. We'll talk
0: about a lot of that stuff. Yeah, we'll yeah. Yep. So
1: and we're going to talk about the surrender with Joseph E. Johnston as well, and probably a little bit of the aftermath about that. And then we will be, I think, into,
0: I think, Chancellorsville. We'll be getting into Chancellorsville, which yep. is coming around the corner. It's, I think it's that time. It's almost it's almost May, right? Yep. I mean, 36 episodes of dealing with this? Unbelievable. I'm you know? shocked you're still here. I am, too. Trust me. Trust me. I'm you know, stunned. I should run for the hills. But it's... um. Like old Jefferson Davis did, Mary. He should go to Irwinville. <laughs> so I should go, but um, but no, I, it's good. We got a lot of good stuff coming. So again, thanks for listening. We appreciate if we don't say that enough to people who listen. Yeah, thank to this, you. Because it's just we just have a lot of fun with this. So we just like
1: well, thank and thank this. you for being the awesome co-host you are for these last thirty-six episodes.
0: Yeah, you know, I just have to be part of the team. You know, no, but but it's it's a good stuff. So we got um some good stuff coming down the pike. Uh, we have our roundtable here a week a week from well a week from Wednesday. Yep. so this episode
1: is. drops oh. saturday so it'll be just a few days away and as we said if you you haven't attended our roundtable before it's just a very casual discussion we don't have a topic we just get together and it's a lot like our facebook lives we just meet on zoom you know and talk about whatever for an hour an hour and a half so um if you haven't attended it before just send us an email info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com and we will be sure to get you an invite to that
0: Yep, definitely do. It's a lot of fun, and anybody who's um interested, like you said, we'll talk about it on our live again, and we'll do with that, and then we'll get ready for our next book club too, as you say. So, yeah. Any last and final parting words from you after episode thirty six, mm-hmm. Finn <laughs> Oh, Well,
1: thank you first of all to all our listeners for your support these thirty six episodes, and again, thank you to you for always oh, well, bringing it. To,
0: well, thank you to you too, you know whatever. <laughs> You suck. Whatever. Okay. but No, it's awesome. Anyway, so we will look forward to talking to everybody later on. So again, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Have a fantastic, fantastic Saturday. Have a great weekend. Hopefully we'll see you on our live. We will always catch up with you, as they say, Mary, on the other side. See y'all later. Peace out.